understand that as a movement, we were committed to the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. We studied the way of peace, the way of love. And it didn't matter whether we were black or white, Latino or Asian American or Native American. We were one people, one family. I'd rather people be upset and hate me than be bleeding or dead. It's a universal story, and it's very contemporary. It's of now. It's about people who won, people who triumphed. Give us the vote! We're not asking, we're demanding. Give us the vote! They are not gods. They are not superheroes. They were just people who did incredibly heroic things. It was very strategic to go into a place that had people who were going to fight back, and that that conflict could be utilized to galvanize a nation, which is what happened. I don't think people in the United States understand how they got where they are. They've heard, I have a dream, but they haven't heard the private agony of going into Selma knowing that any step could be your last. Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome. Again, my name is Amanda Neppel, and I'm the discipleship director here. I am so glad to see all of you here this morning. That clip that we saw was uh, kind of a featurette about the movie Selma, which came out about a year ago, and it tells the story, the history behind the historic march that was led finally by uh, Dr. King um, and supporters of all uh, races and ethnicities, and it, it talks about the march that took place beginning in Selma all the way to Montgomery, Alabama. It's a really great movie. I recommend that you check it out um, if you have the opportunity to do so. What was going on and why this march was so important at that time was because although the law said that everyone had the right to vote, Various counties, uh, particularly in the Deep South, had come up with all sorts of ways to keep black people from being able to register to vote. And that was the primary issue. If you couldn't register to vote, obviously, you could not vote. And the reason this was such a big problem was because when, when things would, tra tragedies or murders or things would happen in the community, for example, if a black person was killed in the community, almost never was anyone brought to um, stand trial for that crime because the officials, the prosecutors, the judges, all of those were elected officials and without the right to vote there was no motivation for these officials to do the right thing. They could get by doing the wrong thing as long as they wanted to. And also along with that, which was also a huge tragedy, a huge misstep, was that if you had the misfortune of being a black person on trial for a crime, you would look out at the jury that was going to decide your fate and they would be almost entirely completely Caucasian because to be called for jury duty, you have to be registered to vote. And so there was this prejudice and this systemic partiality that was built into the very fabric of the society. It wasn't even people standing up and saying this is wrong. It was so much more than that because it was built into everyday life. It was systemic and it was everywhere. And so this march from Selma to Montgomery had been attempted twice. And the first time it ended in horrible, horrible violence. That day was March 7th of 1965 and Dr. King was not there that day. He was going to join up later on. So there were about 300 people who began that march and once they got over to the other side of the bridge and the troopers and the officers were there, uh, they were chased down. They were 
brutally attacked. One of the gentlemen that you saw in that clip, uh, David Young, he was a congressman, has been a, a congressman for many, many years since then. He was there that day of that first march, and he suffered a fractured skull um, because the, the troopers had caught up to him. And so what happened here was that this happened to then make it to national television. And so people then from all over the country saw what had happened that day and what that ultimately ended up doing. Even as, as Dr. King showed up for a second march, there were so many people then who realized that they couldn't just ignore what was happening, that they had to do something about it. So they showed up for this second march that then Dr. King led. And they got over to the bridge and they saw that the troopers were waiting for them and they knew they didn't have any protection. And so what Dr. King did was ultimately he turned them around. And that's what he said in the clip, I'd rather have people be mad at me than be beaten and dying in the street. Well, the violence, while the violence was taking a toll on him, it was taking a toll on others as well. And people with power and authority and the uh, ability to do something about what was happening realized that even though they had thoughts in their head, they had ideas about equality and what it meant to treat people without partiality, even though they had those ideas in their head, they weren't making them into action. And they realized that by not acting, what was actually happening is they were going to land on the side of history that was going to be shown to be wrong. By not acting, they were grouped together with those whose hearts were filled with hate. And so what happened was, people knew they had to act. People knew that they had to show up and get busy. And so on that third March then, they were successful. They had gotten um, permission and safety granted to them that anyone who tried to stop them was going to be in violation of the law. And this is so much of what Dr. King's legacy is about. It's what we heard read today uh, in our Bible reading in James chapter 2, verse 1. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? The thoughts and the philosophical ideas had to become action because without action, it was inadvertently demonstrating that some people were favored over others. And as James says, you cannot say that you have faith in Jesus Christ if your actions say differently. So we understand that that question in James chapter two is more of a rhetorical question, right? We know that love and prejudice cannot coexist in the same heart, in the same space. And so that's where what we read today and what Dr. King was all about, that's where these things become very real to each one of us, right? Because we know that we've all had times in our heart where our preconceived judgments, our snap decisions, our first impressions, we see a situation where we can get the idea that possibly we're called to act with love, but the stuff that's holding us back keeps us from doing what we know Jesus is actually calling us to do. And so this is the idea I want us to keep thinking about today, this idea that thoughts, actions, our heart, those connections, how all of these three things are connected and how thoughts and feelings without actions sometimes don't have a whole lot of weight behind them, right? And we're talking about this not in the sense of legalistic terms as far as, well, I have to do this so I'll be a good Christian so Jesus will like me. It has nothing to do with that. What it has to do with is how Jesus calls us and compels us and moves us forward. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 14. Um, we're going to get there in just a second. <laughs> Luke chapter 14 is one of those where you can read it 
say you're going through your Bible study or you're, maybe you're trying to get through, you know, the Bible in a year or something like that, and you get to Luke chapter 14, you read, okay, verse 1, um, so one Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the house of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. So you read that, and you might be tempted to think, okay, great, I know what's going on. Jesus went to the preacher's house after church for lunch, right? That's kind of what it sounds like. But in fact, if you dig a little bit deeper, this is one of those times where scripture, sometimes it's nice to have people around us who are maybe a little bit smarter than we are, because I will admit that I was one who was like, oh, awesome, isn't that nice? Jesus is having lunch with some people, and they're watching him closely because he's Jesus, right? But uh, when we dig a little bit deeper, when we get some other slightly smarter opinions in on the matter, uh, we learn that there's really a lot more going on there than that. So for me, it was John Ortberg, who happens to be the author of the book, Who Is This Man? And so a lot of what I'm going to pull out of John, or excuse me, out of Luke chapter 14 comes from this book by John Ortberg, where he explores the life of Jesus and what it was that Jesus did while he was here on earth and the impact that it's had after that. So, Luke chapter 14, Jesus went on the Sabbath to have dinner in the home of the Pharisees. Basically, what Jesus proceeds to do after this is lay out a systematic plan how to make sure that you never again get invited to anyone's house for anything. Because he is going to make sure that no stone goes unturned, that no one leaves this party feeling good about where they're at. The no, you know, he's, you're, you're going to see. He's going to go through here piece by piece. And he starts right out of the gate. He hasn't even gotten in the guy's house yet. He goes up to the house and he sees that there's a crowd there. There's people who have gathered who are going to see who all maybe is going to this uh, Pharisee's leader's home. There's a man there with dropsy. And dropsy is a swelling of the arms and the legs. So it would have been a physically painful condition. It certainly would have made life very difficult for this man. And so Jesus goes up and remember it's the Sabbath. And Jesus looks at this man and knows that the people are watching him because they want to know what he's going to do. And so he says, is it not legal to heal someone on the Sabbath? And he knows what's in their hearts. He knows what they're thinking, that they're really just trying to trap him and wait and see what he's going to do. Well, of course, obviously, he touches the man, and the man is healed. And so already people are like, oh, this is going to be good. And he knows what they're thinking. And he says, if any of you had a child or an animal that you cared about that was part of your family, part of your livelihood, and they were hurt on the Sabbath, wouldn't you do something about it? And twice in that short little passage, verses 4 and verse 6, it says that the people could not answer him. So he's already stunned everyone into silence, and we're only at verse 6, right? So then they make it into the home, and Jesus isn't done. What he sees happening is that the people who are invited to this party all they are doing is jockeying for position, where they're going to sit. Because sitting up at the head of the table means that you are more important, means that you're part of the in crowd. And sitting down at the bottom of the table means that you are a less distinguished guest. So he goes to the guests and he's like, really, guys? Listen, let me give you, a, really, to start with, some common sense advice. Let's say you sit up here at the head of the table, and then the host comes in and says, no, I have this seat saved for someone else. And then you have to walk down the walk of shame to the foot of the table. You know, I guess this is, this is my seat. Jesus says, don't do that. Find a seat down here at the bottom of the table. And then when your host says, oh, no, friend, I have a better spot for you, he brings you up there. 
And instead of being embarrassed, you're honored by your host. First of all, that's just practical advice. But second of all, what Jesus is saying, that the humbled will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. It sounds like table assignments, but you and I know with the uh, perspective of history that Jesus isn't just talking about table assignments here, right? He is going directly to the people and he's saying, you have this idea of who is in and who is out. And you have an idea of who matters and who doesn't. And Jesus says, I am here to tell you that your entire seating chart is completely messed up. So he's healed on the Sabbath. He's gotten everybody to be quiet about that. He's just told the guests that they're acting like a bunch of jerks. And now he's going to go to the host and he's going to say, by the way, when you were writing out your guest list, I'm sure you had a very specific group of people in mind, but your guest list is a hot mess. I can see that you've seen my slide. (laughs) I can tell. If you throw a dinner party and these people show up to your party, it's a pretty good bet that your guest list is messed up, okay? That's pretty clear. Or I don't know, if you tell people to come in weird animal masks, I guess that's up to you. But if that happens, you have a pretty clear idea that your guest list is a joke. But Jesus says to the host, he says, listen, you have invited all these people who are just like you. You get together and you talk about the ways that people aren't keeping the absolute letter of the law. You get together and you make yourselves feel good about each other because you're in and everyone else is out. And Jesus says, what if instead of inviting people who are just like you, who you know are going to be able to repay you, what if instead you go out and you invite the poor? How about instead, what if you go out and invite the lame and the blind, and the disabled. Now listen, if you're hearing this, Jesus has just completely gone off the rails because in that culture, to be poor meant that God was withholding his blessing from you. And that's one thing. But to be physically disabled meant not only was God withholding his blessing, but you were in a state of active punishment for sin. That Any sort of physical thing that was different about you from other people meant that God was punishing you. And we know that because we have the story of the blind man, and and the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And Jesus says, no, it was neither. So when Jesus is telling the leader of this dinner party, the host, to go out and find the disabled, the poor, the lame, he's saying, Go out there and find the people who you are convinced are out. Get rid of these people who you believe are in, because this is all the rewards you're ever going to get from them. But go out and find the people who are on the outside. Go out and find the people who are not what you would expect. Now, by this time, everybody, like, their jaw is, like, wide open. Have you ever been to a party? We're coming out of the holidays, so maybe you had a family gathering where everything just, like, was a just a train wreck, and then somebody does something, there's always somebody in a crowd that will say something just so completely ridiculous because they're trying to just lighten the mood, and that happens, and you're just like, oh, you, you made it worse, right? It happens all the time. There's always somebody in that group, and there is somebody in this group as well who this poor, kind, sensitive soul, he can't take it anymore. And so he says, Jesus, hey, come to think of it, won't it be awesome to be at a banquet in the kingdom of heaven? Oh, man, Jesus, that's going to be so great. (laughs) And Jesus is like, well, since you brought it up, let me tell you about that. 
And so he goes on and he tells the parable of the feast. This is chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. And so a wealthy man decides to throw a banquet, right? And this guy invites all of the usual suspects. And the dinner is getting ready. It's, um, it's going to be wonderful. And so when everything's ready to go, he sends his servants out to uh, get the people who are invited to come to this banquet. Well, one by one, they all have their excuses for why they can't come. And so the servants come back and they say, hey, nobody can make it. And of course, the master is angry, but instead of letting the food go to waste or instead of letting his anger become something else, he says, okay, no problem. You know what? Go out into the town and find anyone who looks like they could benefit from a good meal. Find the poor, find anybody you can find who you think would want to come to this banquet. So that's what they do. And sure enough, the people come and they're sitting at the table and they say, you know what, master, we brought the people that we could find, but there's still room. And this is where the master like completely does something that the Pharisees, the leaders at that time would have just, it would have blown their minds. The master says, okay, I tell you what, go outside of the city walls and find the people who are hiding. Find the people who are hiding behind the hedges. Find the people who are so out that they're hiding. Find the people who would rather Give up the protection of the city. Find the people who are so ashamed that they don't want to be seen. Find the most broken hearts and broken people that you can find and bring them to my banquet. When Jesus said this, there would not have been, I mean, the people were probably sitting there with their mouths just open. You could have heard a pin drop in that room because Jesus is saying, you guys have got this entirely messed up. You have forgotten, oh, leaders of the people, that when God blessed you as descendants of Abraham, God blessed you so that you would be a blessing. God didn't bless you so that you could say, oh, aren't we wonderful and we keep all the laws and we're so great. God blessed you so that you would be a blessing and that you would go out and that other people would see this nation with God's blessing and they would want to be a part of it. But Jesus is saying you have got this entirely messed up. And it's not that Jesus woke up in a bad mood that day. It's not that Jesus was just had a cold sore or something and was just crabby. He was saving this for these people because they had gotten it so backwards. Jesus was on the side of the people who were hiding out in the hedges, who felt like they couldn't even walk into the city because people were going to judge them. Jesus is on their side, and he needs the religious leaders at the time, the people who had the authority. He needs them to know that their prejudice and their partiality has gotten them so completely turned around. There was a man who understood this about Jesus with incredible clarity. And that guy was Saul, who we also know as Paul. Saul hated Christians, and he probably hated them because he understood exceptionally, explicitly what it was that Jesus was up to. He understood exactly that Jesus was about tearing down who was in and who was out. And Saul, as a religious leader, was all about who's in and who's out. Saul was, frankly, before Jesus got a hold of him, he was a bad dude. He would have been on the bridge at Selma. He would have been one of the troopers. And if he wasn't actively one who was engaged in violence, he would have been standing on the sideline 
approving of it. As the Bible tells us in uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that Saul had witnessed the stoning of a man named Stephen. Stephen was an early follower of Jesus, and he had just delivered a beautiful message that really called the religious leaders to the carpet. And so they got together. They couldn't take it. They got together, and they stoned him to death. And the Bible says in chapter eight, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that Saul witnessed this. He saw what had happened, and he approved of this killing of Stephen. But somehow this same guy then was continuing on the road, and Jesus got a hold of him and literally blinded him on the side of the road. And Saul then began to be known by his Latin name, Paul. Saul and Paul really just mean the same thing. Saul is uh, a Hebrew name. Paul is a Latin name. When Paul went out to do his um, evangelizing and talking about Jesus, he knew it would put people at ease if he used his Latin name. So that's really the only difference between Saul and Paul. But how did Paul, this guy who hated Christians, who was adamant about maintaining those lines of who's in and who's out. How did he then end up years later being the one who would write something like this in Galatians 3, 23, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free nor male nor female because we are all one in Christ Jesus. It's the same guy. How did that happen? And I think that there are a couple ways that this happened, the first big one, most important one by far, was that Jesus got a hold of him. Jesus literally blinded this guy on the side of the road because that's what it was going to take to get this dude's attention. I hope that you have a moment in your memory, a big one, several small ones, where you know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus got a hold of you and didn't change your behavior because he needed you to live a different way for him, but changed your behavior because he wanted you to turn around and live a different way so that you could be a blessing to others. That happened when people saw what was happening in Selma, Alabama. When they saw it on TV, a lot of people had that moment in their life. I think a lot of you had that moment last weekend when 52 of you came up to be baptized or to reaffirm your baptism. And I think if you were one of those or if you were watching the folks who came up to be baptized, there was a real sense, at least I got it as I stood up here and took names of people who wanted to be baptized, that it wasn't out of, well, I got to do this because baptism and everybody else is doing it and it's something I got to do to prove how much I love Jesus. That wasn't it at all, right? It was Jesus had gotten a hold of your heart and you didn't have a choice but to move forward and receive the gift of baptism because Jesus compelled you to do that. He turned you around and has given you an opportunity to stop doing some of the things you were doing, not because he needs you to act a certain way, but so that you can be a blessing to others. Jesus got a hold of Paul big time. And the second thing that Jesus did to Paul, <clears throat> Jesus didn't send Paul out to go hang out in a cave by himself for two months to read all the scripture that he could find. That's not what Jesus did at all. Jesus sent Paul into community. He sent Paul to go hang out with other believers because that's what Paul needed to do. Paul needed to practice loving other people. Paul needed to receive forgiveness. Does that sound like any of us? Maybe we aren't out persecuting Christians, but all of us need 
to practice loving others. All of us need to practice receiving forgiveness. <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about getting into community, about being into groups. And the reason I'm doing that is not because I'm the discipleship director and that's what they pay me to do. Lots, by the way. Um, I, <laughs> I want you to get into Christian community because it is good for your heart and for your soul. I want you to experience what it's like to intentionally have people who are walking along beside you in your journey. And the reason, one of the reasons I want that for you so much, I, uh, my husband and I, my family and I have a group that is an interesting group. There is no doubt about it. But I'm going to tell you the straight up truth right now. I cannot imagine my life without those people. I can't dream of it. I can't imagine what it would be like to, I can't express that. I, to know that no matter what happens, to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and to know that if I need something, there are four or five people who no matter what have my back who have my husband's back. It's not going to matter if what I did is entirely my fault. They're going to help me out, and then they might come back later and say, Amanda, we have got to talk about what happened, right? Now, this didn't happen in three weeks. It didn't happen in a year, but it happened over time of saying, these are the people that I'm committed to because I am practicing learning how to love people when it would be easier not to when it would be easier to say, you know what, that's messy, I don't really want anything to do with it. We have to practice doing that. Dr. King didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to go to Selma. I don't know, I've never been there. I think I'm going to do this big, huge thing. No, that's not what happened at all. And the people who showed up for that second and third march, it's not that they woke up and they thought, well, I've never done anything like this before. No, they had been practicing. They had practiced what it looks like to love other people when it would be easier to turn our backs. That's why I want us to get into community, because the only way we really learn what it's like to tear down the boundaries of who's out and who's in is to practice loving people when we just assume that they were out sometimes. There have been things that have happened in our group. Um, we've gone through a lot of happy times together, and there have been a lot of unpleasant things. It's not a matter of if stuff is going to happen to you. It's a matter of when it's going to happen. Absolutely no doubt. And the people who live intentionally in community with us, walk through us in those things. Not to mention that so many of us on a Sunday morning will leave here and we feel so great and we're so ready to go and then it gets to be Tuesday or Wednesday and then we're like, man, that feeling I had on Sunday morning, where did that go? And what intentional Christian community does is it helps to fill in that gap. Without it, the distance from Sunday to Sunday feels like a lot more than seven days. Some of you know what I'm talking about. That gap between having our hearts filled up from the Spirit one week to the next week, and then what if, what if it's cold outside and we don't make it? What if the bus doesn't start and we don't make it? But it's intentional Christian community, that people that you can reach out to and say, I'm in it, can you pray with me? Oh, what a huge difference that makes. I know that uh, you might be thinking, you know, I don't know. 
I've tried a life group thing. I'm not really too sure about it. What I really would like to have is a life group where we're all within about six months of the same age of each other, and uh, we all um, have the same political views. That'd be helpful, too. And then if all of us could drive a Toyota. I'm teasing, but only a little. <laughs> that... Listen, I understand that, and so I'm just going to, I feel like at four and a half months, that's about how long I've been here, I'm hopeful that we have this kind of relationship now where I can gently challenge you a little bit, and you'll hear it in the way that it is intended, which is not to beat anyone up or make anyone feel bad by any stretch of the imagination, but no group is going to be exactly what you want it to be because you're in it, right? right? Turn to the person next to you and say, no group is going to be exactly what you want it to be. No, it's not going to be. It's not going to. Our group has folks in stages, in life stages from the spectrum. We've got kids in elementary school. We've got kids who are just recently getting married. We've got kids who have graduated. We've seen them graduate high school and college and now get married. It's almost multi-generational in that some of the oldest kids are now hanging out with us. I mean, it's really, it's not the group that anyone would say, yeah, these are my, this is the one for me. No, it's not. But it's commitment to saying, we're going to do this together. I know that it's scary. I know that it can totally be scary. And so that's why we are doing things this January that we have really not done before here at Hope Des Moines. And we are giving you opportunities to wade in. You don't have to jump in full body off the high board. We are giving you ways to wade in. That's what... Um, who is this man is all about short-term group launch plus five weeks of study after that. Maybe you're passionate about ways to serve others in the community and you want to learn how to do it in a way that doesn't accidentally do more harm than good. Check out When Helping Hurts. That starts on Wednesday. Maybe you're wanting to get in a group, but you know that there's stuff going on in your past that is going to prevent you possibly from having authentic, honest relationships. Great. Sign up for um, Life's Healing Choices, which also starts on Wednesday. <clears throat> Maybe you're thinking, I hear you, I hear you, but you have no idea. You have no idea what's going on, and I'm not ready. Okay but I'm not going to leave you there either because there are so many ways. Maybe you're not ready to wade in. Maybe you just need to dip your toe a little bit, and that's fine too because on your chair, do you see all those opportunities, ways to get involved in the hospitality team? Do you know that when you uh, hang out with the hospitality folks, people in here know your name? Do you know that I see them pray together almost every weekend? So if you don't know the last time that you've prayed with another group of Christians, the hospitality team would be a great way to get plugged in to that. Let's say you've been, maybe you've been thinking, you know what, I, uh, I feel this tug of leadership on my heart, but I don't know what to do with that. Be an usher. Lead someone to their seat. <laughs> it's something that anyone can do. Maybe you're thinking, you know what, I don't even feel like I even know the Bible stories. Like, I wouldn't even know. The group would find out that I don't know anything, and I feel like I just need to get a little bit more biblically literate before I jump into anything else. You know what? You know one of my favorite ways to learn the Bible stories is? Because this changed my life 10 years ago. Get involved in Hope Kids. You're going to learn the stories. You are going to learn the story of our Savior from Genesis to Revelation just by getting involved with Hope Kids. And by the way, you get to be a hero every week. Like, I personally don't see much of a downside to that. There are so many ways that you can dip your toes because we want to make this something that anyone can do because it's so important. 
It's about practicing. It's about practicing loving others when it would be easier not to. That's what James was saying. How can you declare that you love Jesus Christ with this partiality in your heart? We have to practice. We aren't born knowing how to love others well. And the best way to practice is to practice with other people who have committed to put up with you at least for a few weeks. Right? Please stand for the blessing. Whatever it is that God has put on your heart today, and I know, I know that God is not finished with any of us. God has not said to us, okay, you're there, you're here, good job, way to go. But the way for us to experience love, to experience the love that Jesus has lavished on us, to be, receive that blessing so that we can go out and be a blessing, practice practice. Receive the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. See you next time.